So, in 1870, a man named John Roblin, along with his son, Washington Roblin, they began the construction of what we know today as the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, if completed, this bridge would stand to be the biggest and longest suspension bridge in the entire world. But not long into the project, John Roebling, the father, suffered an accident, which would ultimately take his life. His son, Washington Roebling, would then take over command of the, of the project. And only a few short months later, he would suffer a diving accident, which would leave him paralyzed and unable to speak. So as all the naysayers and all the I told you so started to roll in, and everybody who assumed this monumentous project could never get off the ground in the first place, it seemed as though the project was certainly going to be buried after all of these tragic accidents. But it would be Washington's wife, Emily Roblin, who, knowing how much it meant to her husband to be able to salvage the legacy of his father and this project he set out for, she took it upon herself to learn Moore's code. She then taught her husband, Washington, that code. And through his ability to tap out the Morse code on the inside of her leg, she became a liaison between Washington and his team of engineers. And over the next 13 years, they ended up constructing the Brooklyn Bridge. And in 1883, it came to completion. Now, bridges have been used since the beginning of time uh, to connect, right? Whether it be two pieces of land, two masses of land, or it be two people whose hearts have been estranged, bridges have always been used to connect. And what we're going to see here in this text today is we're going to see how God uses his people to do exactly that. He uses his people to, to connect each other. So we're going to pick up this, the, the text here in, in Acts chapter one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now, we know that this text here in Acts chapter 8 is picking up where Acts chapter 7 left off, right? In the, the murder and the execution of Stephen, uh, our church's first martyr, right? An outcome which at first can seem unnecessary, at least untimely, right? It would seem like such a, a young man of God who's had so much zeal and potential in his ministry, that was cut down short prematurely, right? But it's not until we get to this text here in Acts chapter 8 that we recognize the Lord's master plan behind it, right? And we can actually get a chance to see the genius of God's plan. Um, it would seem that up until this point in Acts chapter 8 that the church has kind of settled in and they've become fairly comfortable in their ministry there in Jerusalem, right? Um, it's not hard to imagine why, right? I mean, it tells us that within a couple of days of the Holy Spirit falling on Pentecost, 5,000 people came to Christ. Everybody was liquidating their assets, and they were all thrown in in the middle, right, and taking care of each other. I mean, it would make sense to dig your heels in there in Jerusalem and, and settle and focus on that ministry, right? And it, it seems like if I look at my life, I can see that similar situations can arise, right? Like It can look the same way. My job's good. My kids are good. Uh, I'm going to church. Right? I kind of fall into that, if it isn't broke, don't fix it kind of motto, which is fine, as long as the position that I'm in, the place that I'm in, is, is, is where the Lord has positioned me, it can, as long as I'm being content in where I'm at. And Paul encourages that, right? Remember Philippians chapter 4, where he says, uh, uh, 
I'm content in all things, whether I be a base or I be a bound, right? So that's good. The problem that we run into is that there can be a very fine line between contentment and complacency, can't there? Right now, complacency is when the Lord has given us instructions, but we choose just to stay where it's more comfortable, right? We kind of settle into that armchair ministry where we kick our feet up and just get, get relaxed back. Now, we know that these disciples, they were given clear instructions by the Lord, right? We know from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord says, I want you to go out, be my witnesses, right? Go to Jerusalem, Judea. Sorry about that. He told them to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the utmost parts of the earth, right? So it would seem that the disciples, what we've seen here in the first seven chapters, that they've become a little bit complacent, right? And it tells us that we have this, this great persecution. And it would seem that the Lord is allowing this persecution to take place so that he can accomplish his will, right? So that he can spread the gospel message and multiply his kingdom. And we've seen throughout the history of the world, especially throughout the history of the Bible, the Lord allow persecution to take place so that he might accomplish his will and, and multiply his kingdom, right? Um, in the 1940s, there was an estimated 800,000 professing Christians in mainland China. Right now, during this 1940s, China experienced what they called the Cultural Revolution. It was in 1949 that China would make a transition in their government from democracy into communism. Now, almost instantly, once the, com once the communist government took, took reign, they uh, uh, set out an ambush of persecution against the Christians there in China on a mass scale, forcing the Christian church to go underground. Now, for a long, long time, the curtain was closed in China. We weren't able to get in. We weren't able to get any kind of information on what was happening to our brothers and sisters there. Of course, we had to assume the worst here in the West. And it would be decades later before the curtain would finally be raised up on China. We'd be able, and, and the religious tolerance kind of was, was, was settled in. And we were able to get in there and get, get missionaries back boots on the ground. And when we did, the number that came back was astounding. They estimated that there was somewhere between 50 and 100 million professing Christians in mainland China in 1970s when, they, when, when the communist government kind of shifted. You know, it, it, the same persecution that Satan will use in attempts to extinguish the church is the same persecution God will use to ignite that fire, right? So in verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now Saul, the man who was in charge of this full-scale assault on the believers, right? it says that he made havoc on the church. Now that word in the Greek that, that describes making havoc is the same word that would be used to describe a, a wild beast tearing through a carcass in the middle of the woods or, or a tornado that was ripping through, through a small village town. This man, Saul of Tarsus, with the authority of the Sanhedrin behind him, he was nothing short of a terrorist to the Church of Christ. Uh, years later, after his conversion into the man we know as Paul the Apostle, uh, Paul will get arrested for his, for his faith in Christ. Right? And he will, be, he will stand trial, and he'll give his testimony to first Governor Felix and then to King Agrippa right? in chapters 24 and 26 of, of this book. And when he does so, um, we find out a lot more gruesome details uh, about Saul's time at this, uh, Saul's actions at this time, much worse than, uh, than, than, than dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Paul will actually admit, and he'll, he'll use a statement, he says that I compelled them to blaspheme. 
Now, there's a pretty standard um, and effective tactic that was used to accomplish such a feat. We see it even today with the radical Muslim terrorist groups. Right? What would happen was they would go and they would, they would, they would gather up the, the, the accused households. They would set the man across the room and they would take his family in front of him. And they would, Paul, Saul would then put a blade up to the man's wife's throat. And he would tell him to denounce Christ. And if the man refused, he would open the wife's throat up and lay him at her feet, at his feet. And he would do the same thing going down through the man's children. And in the event that the man was capable of standing for Christ up until that point, he would join his family on the floor. Now, as you can imagine, this didn't have to happen with every single family. It would only take you hearing about what happened to the Joneses before the dominoes would start to fall and Christians would start to fall as well, as far as their faith for Christ was concerned. Saul, acting on what he believed was God's will, he did everything he could here in Acts chapter 8 to exterminate the church of Christ. And the disciples, as you can imagine, fled in every direction, right? And verse 4 tells us, it says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. It says in verse 4 that they went everywhere and preached the word. Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say that they ran to social media and made a rant about how much of a monster that Saul was, right? It doesn't say that they went and constructed signs and, and protested on the, on the inhumane treatment of the disciples in Jerusalem. It says that they fanned out in every place that they went, each of them preached the word. Now, I think it's also noteworthy to recognize that these men who were doing this, these were not uh, formally trained ministers and evangelists. These were mechanics, electricians, carpenters, long-haul truckers. These were regular, everyday folks just like me and you. Well, all they did was simply tell people about the good news every place that they went. In verse 5, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now, we're being introduced to Philip. Remember Philip, we were introduced to him back in Acts chapter 6, right? He was one of the seven that were appointed to be deacons over the, the food distribution. Remember the Hellenists were having a, they were having a fit because they believed their widows weren't being treated the same way that the Hebrew-speaking widows were. So the apostles decided to appoint seven men, devout for the Holy Spirit, to, to serve tables to these widows. Right? We've, we've already met Stephen. Philip was one of, the, one of the most mentionable as well. And it says that Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ, preached Christ to them. Now, this is a really big deal. All right, so it, it, Philip going to Samaria and preaching Christ to them is not the same thing as you and me getting in our vehicle and going down to Portland and preaching Christ to them. All right, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They absolutely hated each other. It was a long-lasting, long and it was a very, uh, a very deep-rooted situation, animosity that went on between them. See, back in the 10th century BC, there was a, a break in the monarchy. Remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he split the, split the nation up. The monarchy of Israel was split into two. The ten tribes went to the north, they retained the name Israel, and they took the capital city, Samaria. When the last two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they stayed down in the south, they claimed Judea, and they took on the capital city, Jerusalem. Now, these, this family feud was, was very heated. It was kind of Hatfield and McCoyish. 
they 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 didn't they didn't speak to each other whatsoever. Well, years down the road, the Assyrian Empire is going to be making its its quest for world domination. Remember, and they're gonna they're gonna capture uh, the top the, the the northern ten tribes. And they're gonna take them captive. It was a, it was a war tactic that the Assyrians practiced, where they would take the best of the best out of the country, out of the out of the nation, and they would uh, they would leave kind of the worst of the worst, kind of the broken the broken. They would leave them in that nation. But not only that, they would also import the worst to the worst from other nations so that they could continue to keep that nation populated. Well, over time, the Jews that were up in Samaria, they began to intermarry with these, these foreigners. They began to interpopulate with these foreigners. And soon enough, they tainted the bloodline and they created an entire new race. They commit, created the Samaritans. Now, the Jews that were down in Judah, they were disgusted by what they were seeing the Jews up in Samaria do. They completely broke off from them. They considered them half-breeds, impure, and a, and, a, and a stain on their heritage. And they, they didn't consider them Jews whatsoever anymore. There was a complete separation. Now, we know in 586 BC, Babylonians will come in and do the same thing with Judah, right? And King Xerxes will allow Nehemiah after 70 years to come back and rebuild the, 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 the city and rebuild the walls. And we remember in Nehemiah chapter 2 that these Samaritans came down. Remember uh, Sambalat and Tobiah? They came down and they wanted to get in on it. They said, man, let us, let us get involved with this with you. We've all kind of suffered over these last years, man. Let's, let's just do this together. We can all, this can be our thing. And Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's like, eh, nah, dude, I'm good. Thanks, but no thanks. This is kind of a covenant thing. You guys do your thing up there. We'll, we'll let you know if we need any help. And they sent him away. And that really fueled the hatred between these two nations, these two races. So much to the point that at 303 BC, the Samaritans then decided they're going to make their own temple. They're going to replicate the one in Jerusalem, but they're going to build it on Mount Gerizim. They're going to claim it as their own mountain. They're going to also start manipulating the scriptures, and they're going to start making claims that Abraham offered Isaac up on Mount Gerizim, not on Mount Moriah. And they're going to start basically doing the same thing the Muslims did with Isaac and Ishmael, and they're going to start trying to manipulate it so that it, it looks the way they want it to. They basically started forming their own version of Judaism. And this is going to bore a racial hatred um, that's going to go so deep that if, if citizens of each race saw each other on site, there will be violence. And this went on for, at this point, over 600 years. So for Philip to go to Samaria and preach Christ to them, that's a really big deal. And we remember back in John chapter 4, right, when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Guys, I, I must go through Samaria. I have to go. And they're looking at him like, what do you mean you must go through Samaria? Any well-respected Jew knows you go up around the Jordan, you don't go through Samaria. And it, it was a remarkable statement at the time. Now, we've all read the chapter, so we know that it wasn't as much he needed to go through Samaria as much as he needed to run into a Samaritan woman at the well, radically change her life. And through her testimony, she was going to bring all the men in that city to Jesus, right? But it would seem that here, Philip recognizes that his king Jesus began to build a bridge between these two people. And it would seem that Philip had every intention on continuing construction on that bridge here as he goes into Samaria. From verse 6, it says, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in that city. Now, this is pretty amazing. I mean, for Philip, a guy who, by all rights, was pretty much a church janitor back in Jerusalem, for him to become this, this mighty, miracle-working preacher set on a mission with incredible results, 
when, if we're being honest, the, the seven that were chosen back in Acts chapter 6, they kind of pulled the short straws. I mean, serving widows at a church soup kitchen isn't exactly a position that you ran home to update your Facebook profile on. But there's a principle here, right? There's a principle of faithfulness. And Jesus said, you know, he who is faithful and little, he'll be entrusted with much, right? But you see, some of us fail right here. Some of us fail at this place of being faithful and little. And we never get to the entrusted with much part. You know, if the Lord asks me to go and serve, serve widows at a soup kitchen, I, I, my response is, oh, no, no, no. That's far too mediocre for me. I'm meant to move mountains. That can't possibly be the voice of the Lord, right? No, you're, you're an idiot, Aaron. Of course, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. See, the fact is some of us fail right here because we believe that our role in the kingdom of God has anything to do with us, and it doesn't. And it has everything to do with him, right? I can remember years ago when I when I I, I started to follow the Lord and I was was allowing him to work in my life, and I, I remember I started to get a response as far as uh, my ability to to speak the word of God. And instantly it went straight to my head. Instantly my head became ten times bigger than it was. I had these grandiose ideas that I was gonna go and I was gonna I was gonna teach thirty thousand people in, in the stadiums full of people, and, and I was such an idiot. But I was convinced that I was going to do this for God. God, Lord, this will be for your glory. And the Lord had to humble me, man, in that, in, that, in that soft but stern way that he humbles us, right? And he said, Aaron, let me ask you a question. What if my role for you in this kingdom was that you were going to vacuum floors? And that's all you were going to do is vacuum floors at the church. And at some point, I'm going to bring a guy past you to go to the bathroom. And I'm going to speak through, it, through you to him. It's going to radically change his life. And he's going to go on and he's going to teach 30,000 people in a stadium. Would that be okay with you? And it blew my mind. He says, 30,000 people are still coming to my name, so that should be to my glory, right? And it humbled me to a degree that I'll never forget. And I could, it'll always change me in the way that I recognize how insignificant I am to this. It's an honor for me to be able to stand here and be able to relay the word of God. But I promise you, if I begin to think this has had anything to do with me, somebody else, I'm just a piece of flesh that's standing here speaking, allowing the Holy Spirit to talk to you people. In verse 9, it says, But there was a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Now, this guy, Simon, is actually, it doesn't speak a lot about him here, but he's actually kind of a big deal. Or at least he was. Um, church history speaks quite a bit about him. His name is Simon, the Ma- Simon Magus or Simon the Magi. He was an occultist. You know, he was a sorcerer. He uh, studied black magic and astronomy. He studied the stars. He studied the entrails of animals. Kind of that toad's breath, kind of nasty uh, stuff we used to see in the movies back in the 80s. Um, but second, you know, we get a little church history on him. Second century historian, Justin Martyr, who's from Samaria, he speaks about him. And he says that Simon Magus was actually considered a god amongst the Samaritans. And this perception of Simon wasn't just exclusive to Samaria, that that perception stretched as far as Rome. That the Romans actually considered Simon Magus to be one of their deities. And they erected a statue of him in Rome and worshipped it there in Rome. 
So the influence that Simon had over these people in Samaria uh, was quite powerful. Now we hear here it says that he used, he practiced sorcery. Now we know that the word sorcery comes from the Greek word pharmakia, right? It's where we get our word pharmacy. It's a word that describes the illicit drug use or, or, or hallucinogenics that we would know of today. I think it's pretty safe to say that here in Maine in 2022, that we've all somehow been affected by the pharmakia epidemic, right? That goes on today. Now, whether we've experienced this personally or through a loved one, uh, we've all witnessed the delusion and the spell that one can go under when under the, 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 the role of this pharmakia. You know, you try to explain to people, you do your best to try to get them to, to snap out of it. The person that you knew and loved and the, and the child or the best friend that you once had, they've turned into this new person. It's a monster and you didn't sign up for this. And every attempt that you make to try to snap them out of it, it seems hopeless and helpless. I think we can all agree that we can appreciate what Luke's trying to say here in, in verse 11 when he says that Simon, he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. I know Satan astonished me with his sorceries for a long, long time. Uh, so I can, I, can, I can relate with these Samaritans and their, their, uh, their, their, the, the allure that they were under and the delusion that they were under, under this, this man, Simon Magus. It says in verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So I'm just going to say, say it now. I, I don't believe that Simon was truly converted. I don't believe he was for a second. I, I don't believe it based on his actions and based on what Peter is about to say to him and rebuke here in a few verses. Um, I just don't think it was a genuine. I, I, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of Simon Magus the same way that I'm skeptical of every time one of our favorite celebrities drops the name of God in an acceptance speech and all of a sudden they're a born-again Christian. I'm not buying it. You know, so I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not buying Simon Magus. Is, is, I think that Simon had a really good racket going with these people in Samaria. I think he had a good thing going. I think he was making a lot of money. I think the offering plate went around two, three times, and I think it came back full every time. And I think that he never saw an end in sight until Philip came on the scene and he introduced the true, genuine power of God. And instantly, Simon's racket was gone. Instantly, everything he had built was diminished. And as any true hustler knows, rule number one is if you can't beat him, join him. And I think that's what Simon did here. It says in, in verse 14 that now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So the apostles who had remained in Jerusalem, they heard what was going on here in Samaria. And they sent Peter and John up there to see if, what they can do to help. Now, I love that the Holy Spirit had Dr. Luke include this detail here. Because as a guy who was really screwed up and made a lot of mistakes as a younger Christian, this is encouraging. Because we remember John, right? And the last time that he was in Samaria. Remember him and his brother, James? Remember they got the, name, the nickname Sons of Thunder? 
They were with Jesus. Remember, and they were headed to Jerusalem. They wanted to lodge in Samaria. They wanted to, they wanted to stay for the night. And they let the Samaritans know one way or another that their faces were, that, that they had their face toward Jerusalem. They were headed to Jerusalem. Samaritans were like, no, you guys can't stay here. Well, James and John, being the very faithful, you know, spiritual men that they are, they tried to encourage Jesus to push the button on these people. He wanted to nuke them all. He said, Lord, tell us. We'll, we'll rain down fire on them. Jesus looks at him and goes, who are you? Crazy people. He goes, what, you don't know what spirit you're from. Not going to nuke anybody. So now here we are, right? Years later, and the apostles hear about what's going on with Samaria, and they say, Peter, we want you to go up there, and we need somebody else. John shoots his hand up. Me. I'll go with you, Pete. Pick me, man. Pete, I need to go up there, man. I need this. I need this, man. I, I, I said some stuff years ago. I, I, it hasn't set well with me since. I, I need to go up there, Pete. I need, a, I need an opportunity to make this thing right. You know, it's really cool for a guy who's made a lot of mistakes to see that when John here now, the new John who's received the Holy Spirit, and you see his actions and his, his, his motivations after he's been transformed by the renewing of his mind, right? And he sees the Samaritans in a whole new way. So verse 18, it says, And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on, anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon, he clearly saw some sort of evidence that the Spirit had fallen on, on, on these Samaritans. Now, I assume that they spoke in tongues, but we don't know. You know, the text doesn't really... Uh, uh, let us know those kinds of details. But whatever it is, Simon immediately coveted it and he immediately knew that he needed to have it. You know, Simon saw that the, what, what happened with the, the, the Samaritans and he said, yes, that, that right there, I need that. He said, I need me some of that. That's what's going to get my show back off the ground. I'm going to be back in business again. He goes, name your price. How much you charge? 10, 20, 30? He knew that if he was to get, if he was to acquire the ability to do what Peter and John just did to those people, there'd be no stopping him. The offering plates would be going back around before you know it. You know, it's, it's really cool to listen to Peter's response here in verse 20. Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now, translated, what Peter's saying here is you and your money can both go to hell. In verse 21, he says, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Now, I truly wish that we had more men of God that responded instantly to sin and wickedness the way that Peter does here. You know, so many of our men in position, especially in the church in America, they, they, they shift their standards and they adjust according to the, the culture and the climate. It's an amazing thing what is happening um, to the truth of God's word. Billy Sunday, an ex-baseball player turned evangelist, when he was responding about his position on rebuking sin, he said, they say I rub the, the fur the wrong way. I don't. He said, let the cat turn around. And it's an amazing thing how we watch pastors and churches in America 
shift the truth to, to, to move along with the world. When the reality is our job has always been to shift the world back to the truth, right? And by far the most disgusting example of this is in the Roman Catholic Church. For centuries, the church has made available for purchase what is known as indulgences. It's basically a, a get-out-of-sin-free card. For example, you can buy an indulgence from the church which would cover you for adultery. And you can do, buy this before you commit the sin. Now, as long as you purchase said indulgence, your sin's brought it out. You're good. Have a great time. Now, unfortunately, the sale of indulgences was outlawed uh, by Martin Luther during the Reformation back in 1567. But good news, in 2009, our new woke pope in Rome uh, has reinstated indulgences. He's made those available again. Uh, you still can't buy them, but for a charitable donation, along with a couple of other acts, uh, you can't earn one. But the problem you run into is that they only offer now one indulgence per sinner per day. So you got to make sure you space out your sins accordingly. They can't make this stuff up. It's disgusting. In verse 25, it says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, toward the, uh, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. Now just imagine for a moment, Philip has just been in the middle of this, what is nothing less than a full-on revival, right? I mean, this thing has been huge. People are getting saved, they're getting delivered, they're getting healed. And Philip, is he's right in the middle of it. He's the guy who brought the message to him. He's involved in it all when the Lord tells him to pack up his stuff and go down to this desert road between Gaza and Jerusalem. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And Philip, being from Jerusalem, would have known that. He knows that there's nothing there. Nobody ever goes there. Nothing is happening there. And I, it makes me wonder what, what my response would have been in this situation. Like if I'm Philip and I'm in the middle of this huge thing and then the Lord says to me, Aaron, now listen, I know that that small little Bible study that you, that you started out there has exploded into a citywide revival. I know families are, are coming to the Lord every single day and they're being baptized you guys just signed the lease on this bigger building in a much better location. But I'm going to need you to go ahead and pass that thing off and pack your stuff. Because uh, I'm going to take you down to this dry, desolate, makes no sense area. And also that's about the, all the information I'm going to give you at this time. I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do. But Philip? Well, Philip's a man who's already proven himself to be faithful and little, right? And now he's going to get the opportunity to be faithful and much. See, God knew exactly what Philip's response would be when he told him to do that. And it tells us in verse 27. So he arose and went. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting on his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. 
So Philip goes out to this road. Certainly he's alone. There's nobody out there until all of a sudden this caravan comes rolling down through. And it's this royal caravan, I'm sure, filled with many different cars. But in, in the middle of it is is an Ethiopian, a eunuch. Tells us that he's a treasurer of the Candace, the queen of Ethiopia. Um, and he comes through in his chariot. Now, it tells us that he's a eunuch. Now, being a eunuch at that time was actually a pretty standard um, thing. If you wanted to be in the inner circle of royalty in these foreign nations, and you decided, this is where I want to be, this is where I want to spend my, and I want to, I want to um, have my allegiance to this queen or this king, they would require you to become castrated. They would require you to, to sacrifice your manhood. It basically did two things. One, you no longer could start your own bloodline. You could no longer form a dynasty. And two, you got rid of uh, enough testosterone that you never had the ambition to try to usurp the throne, right? And try to take it over. So it tells us that this man is a eunuch. It tells us that he's the treasurer of the Candace of Ethiopia, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, it's, it's not saying that her name is Candace. It's saying uh, Candace is a title. Same way as we would say a Caesar or, or a Pharaoh, right? She's the Candace of Ethiopia. That means she's the queen of Ethiopia. And it tells us that this, this, this eunuch was in Jerusalem and he was worshiping there. So we know he's a, he's, a, he's a man who's seeking after the face of God. We know that he traveled very long distance to be able to get to the Lord, to be able to go someplace and worship. There's no way that he could be a true proselyte or a convert because he doesn't have the ability to become circumcised. So most likely he's at best what's called a proselyte of the gate. He will be welcomed into the court of Gentiles is where he could go there to worship. And it also tells us that he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, which is very, very uncommon. The scriptures at this time were not up for private use. Nobody owned a copy like we own Bibles. They were kept in the temple. For this man to have a private copy of the book of Isaiah, that meant he was a man of, of much means, which we know he was, and he probably paid a lot of money for that. So the Holy Spirit tells Philip, it says, run up one, overtake the chariot, run up to that chariot. And Philip does. He catches up to him. And he then, and when he gets there, he hears him reading Isaiah. And he says, hey, man, do you understand what you're reading right now? And the guy goes, no, how can I? How am I going to understand this, man? I'm from Africa. I don't know what this is saying, but I know I need to know what it's saying. And he goes, how can I understand if nobody tells me? And then the guy invites Philip up. He says, come on, man. You come up here and will you explain this thing to me? And it tells us in verse 30. 32, it says, the place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and asked and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Can you imagine what's going on in Philip's mind and his heart emotionally right now? I guess all the pieces are starting to fall together, right? I mean, he's sitting in the back of this Ethiopian diplomat's limousine, right? With the government plates and the eunuch is sitting next to him and he's got the Bible on his lap and he's, he's asking him about Isaiah 53. He's asking him about the suffering Messiah prophecies and Philip, he has that moment. You know, I've had the moment. I, I know what it looks like. I've been blessed to experience it. It's that moment when the entire world just fades into the background. And in an instant, you are slammed with the reality of the genius of our God. You see that barren desert road that Philip was sent to that seems so pointless? 
He was convinced that the only interaction he was going to have was with a wild beast or an outlaw. And that same road just so happened to be the exact route that this Ethiopian diplomat was going to be using to return from Jerusalem. Whom, once shown the gospel, will have the ability to introduce to an entire nation the name of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. The eunuch asked Philip, he says, is he talking about himself or some other man? And Philip must have had to hold back the emotions as he responds. He's like, dude, he's not just a man. You get it? That's our savior, man. That's Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. And then Philip, it tells us in, in verse 35, it says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. So the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, Philip the evangelist was raised up by our Lord Jesus to be a bridge builder. At first, he would be used to, to bridge the gap between two races that, that had been separated by hatred for more than 600 years. After this, through faithfulness, he would be used to build a bridge that would usher the gospel message all the way to the continent of Africa. Now, I want to conclude with a, with a story about two brothers. Now, these two brothers, uh, they grew up together. They were the best of friends. They were thick as thieves. You could not find one without the other, man. They loved each other more than anything in this world. And when they grew up, they built houses on the same plot of land right next to each other. The only thing that separated the two houses was a meadow, a small field. But as time went on, something happened between these two brothers. Words were said and, and bonds were broken and, and that love and camaraderie was replaced with bitterness and, 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 and hatred. And these two brothers, uh, they stopped talking to each other and, and, and they wouldn't speak a word to each other for a long, long time. Years down the road, the older brother sitting in his home and he, he, he gets a knock on his door and he goes to the door and, and there's a man standing there with a toolbox. The man says, Hey, hey sir, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to bother you. Um, I'm a traveling carpenter and I, I saw your beautiful estate here. And I, I, I was just hoping maybe you had a little bit of work that I could do. Just trying to make enough money to get on to the next town. You know, I'm really good at what I do. I'm skilled and, and, and you won't be disappointed in my work, sir, if you can find something for me. And the brother thinks for a second and then, his eyes dart up and he says, yeah, you know what, man? I do have a job for you. Absolutely. Come with me. So he leads the carpenter out to the, to the back of his house where he's got this big, big living room with big bay windows. <clears throat> out looking, overlooking the backyard. And he points through those windows and he points up on the top of the hill. And he says, sir, do you see that house that's up there? The carpenter goes, yeah, I see it. He goes, that's my neighbor, but that's also my little brother's house. He goes, and I can't stand the sight of that house. 
He goes, I never want to see that. If I never see that house again, it'll be too soon. So I got a job for you. He goes, I want you to build a wall. I want you to build a wall right along the bottom of that meadow. And I want you to make sure that it's high enough so that no matter where I go on this property, I never have to see my brother's house again. Can you do that for me? The carpenter says, yeah, it's super weird, but yeah, I can definitely do that for you. And he goes, all right, well, I'm going to go out of town for a few days. I got business out of town. He goes, by the time I come back, I'd like for this to be done. You think you can do that? The carpenter goes, absolutely. So he goes, okay. The older brother packs his stuff and he leaves uh, and leaves the carpenter in charge of the job. Well, the older brother comes back a couple days later full of anticipation and excitement. And he runs through the door. He goes right to that back living room. He looks through the bay windows. And as soon as he looks through it, his jaw drops. And instantly he's filled with rage and frustration because what he's expecting to see a 10 foot high wall running across his property line, he doesn't. He sees a wooden bridge built from one side of the meadow into the next. Mad as can be, he's furious. He starts screaming, Carpenter! He storms to the back door, rips the door open, gets into the backyard. He screams, Carpenter! And just as he's filling his lungs up again to scream one more time, something catches his attention out of the corner of his eye. And he turns and he sees up, up in that meadow, he sees his baby brother with his arms stretched wide and a big smile on his face running down the field toward that bridge. And instantly when he, when he sees this man, all the, all the frustration, all the resentment, all the bitterness just melts off him. Man, he, he runs to meet his brother in the middle of that bridge. They embrace. He says, man, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I love you, man. No, I love you. And it was at that moment that they hear footsteps coming up behind them. And they turn around and there's the carpenter approaching them. The older brother says, man, man, what you, what you did here for us, what you've done here for us today, man, I could never repay you, man. I'm, stay. Please stay. Don't go on to the next town. Stay here, man. We got a big guest house. You can stay there. We'll pay you whatever you want. Name your price. We owe you so much, man. The carpenter puts a smile on his face and he says, man, I appreciate that. I do, man. I, that means a lot. But I can't stay. He goes, I got to keep going. The carpenter says, I got a lot of places I got to be. I got a lot of bridges I got to build. You know, the message of the gospel is a bridge that Jesus Christ built with his blood between himself and mankind. And it's our duty every day to lead people to that bridge. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much. Father, for everything that you have done in our lives, everything that you done to build a bridge between us and you and made it possible for us to spend eternity with you. God, we're so grateful as your people. Lord, we beg you to grow us and transform us and renew us and to conform us into the people that can be focused on your work and focus on leading others to that bridge. Oh God, we're thankful and we're grateful for every day that you give us here on earth. We pray that you give us the ability to make the best of it and to make you proud. 
I thank you so much for all that you do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.